it went straight down the middle. Then it Welcome to another edition of For the Good of the Game and Bruce Devlin. Not only this morning do we have our first Scotsman, but uh, he and I also have something else in common. We're both playing age-appropriate golf shafts. Oh, is that right? Huh? Well, I got to tell you, this this guest we have today, uh, 1985 Open champion and the 88 Masters champion, a winner of 30 golf tournaments around the world, and it is indeed a pleasure to have Sandy Lyle with us today. Sandy, welcome. Mike and I have been looking forward to this for a long time. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your introduction. I'm looking forward to hear your questions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sandy, great to have you with us. And uh, I know you're a hickory player. I just took that up. And so before we're done this morning, we're going to talk a little bit of hickory because I want to know a little bit about your experience. I, I consulted with Bruce on some club tweaking. And uh, so we can compare notes on that later. Okay. Okay. So to tell your story, as we talked about uh, wanting to do, uh, we've got to go back to the beginning. So uh, that takes us back to the late 50s. And mm-hmm. uh, in, uh, in uh, I guess, what would you call that? The West Midlands of England? It's the West Midlands. Uh, Shropshire is the area. It were, Ian Wisnam was also in the same area, too. So if we were born, I was in Shrewsbury. And uh, Wizzy was in Oswald Street, which was about 12 miles up the road. So that's how we all kind of got together in a little place called Shropshire. So I was born in 1958. And uh, my father was from Glasgow area and my mum and my two sisters. And we were actually from sort of golf family in some ways that we were sort of farmers. The family was. And there was a golf course uh, designed by some local friends of his, and the farmland that they had was changed into a golf course, which is still called Clover Golf Course, and it's not owned by the Lyle family now. Um, it's um, owned by the members. And so, so it all started. I think there was nine of my dad's family. So you can imagine with uh, the brothers and things, there was, I think there was five of them. There was uh, not too much space for the position as the professional golfer or club uh, at uh, Clover Golf Clubs. I think my dad had a chance to move down to Shropshire, which is about 450 miles away. And uh, he had an interview, got the position as a sort of club, uh, uh, club pro and also involved with the greenkeeping side. So he's wearing two hats. Uh, really nice place. It was 360-odd uh, acres of land, yeah. uh, a hotel, and one golf course. And the golf course has got follies on it. They've got hills, uh, lots of oak trees, parkland, no, no sea nearby. The nearest sea is about 90 miles away. So I was growing up on a Lynx, uh, not Lynx Golf, uh, on a inland course. So that's how it all started. So my dad was uh, there for about 15 years, mm-hmm. and the whole place came up for sale. Uh, the member of the golf course decided to get a little posse of uh, guys together. There was a builder, there was a lawyer, there was various other people, my dad being the golf side of it. So I called them the, the Dirty Dozen. They were the ones that... Uh, <laughs> sort of put the place and set it off the way it went uh, later on. So it was bought for a grand price of about £65,000, which is about the price of a BMW 5 Series car. <laughs> right. Yeah. Idea, which yeah. I still kind of shake my head in disbelief uh, <laughs> back in the 60s, what it was bought for. And uh, so the pro shop and the house was built together uh, not particularly very good condition. I think my mum was writing a letter uh, one time in the space of about an hour or two hours while she was writing that she caught 13 mice in a mousetrap. So it gives you some idea. And uh, the guy before they moved in, I think, stored coal in the bathroom area. So you can imagine it was really pretty rough. So uh, from there onwards, it just all went... Um, went the right direction. The golf course got improved, and uh, I was born sort of later on, about three years later after my dad moved down, and that was it. He stayed there to remainder of his life. And um, so I really was brought up on golf, 
the DNA has come from the golf probably in Glasgow area. Mm -hmm. um, my dad wasn't too bad a golfer. Uh, my dad's brother, older brother, Walter Lyle, um, he'd won the Scottish professional something or other at some stage. And then Carnoustie, I think he played with um, Ben Hogan at oh. Carnoustie. So there's a name you might be familiar with. Yes, sir. And uh, so his, his initials were A.W. A. Lyle and I'm A.W.B. Lyle. So we're very similar kind of uh, initials. Yeah. So the DNA was there, uh, not going back hundreds of years, but obviously it started off at, uh, some years ago, and I must have maybe got some of that DNA off them and uh, started playing golf at the age, about the age of three, four years old and went from there onwards. And, uh, and there wasn't a junior section at Hawkston Park where I was based at, um, so I really had to sort of play against the, the men. Um, so there was no kind of soft upbringing as far as playing with four-year-olds and matching this and doing that and playing this and that. A bit later on, as we got older, um, and I get towards sort of 14, 15, I got to play in some local events, which Ian Wisdom I got to meet a few times. Uh, one of the directors' son, Tony Minshall, um, was a, an up-and-coming, did turn pro, was about a year and a half older than me. So there were some challenges there and some things to uh, set your sights on and improve your, your score and your golf game. And it all kind of fitted together, but there was no kind of uh, going to classes or you know, once a week with the local golf club and learn how to play the game. It was really built around uh, playing at Hawkston, playing with the members. Uh, my practice ground I had wasn't very wide. It was like 25 yards wide, but running between two fairways. But halfway down the uh, practice ground area, there was uh, a beech tree, which is still there to this day. And that beech tree was my entertainment. It was uh, my little tuba balls. And <laughs> I would play with a sort of a hook shot and go around the tree and over the tree and through gaps and, da -da, and then pick the balls up the other side. And then do the same thing from the other direction. So, and playing below branches and over branches and round hooking, slicing. So, I think that was a really good, um, a good sort of course for me to, a bit like your Bubba Watson, it just plays maneuver shots and you can do it on the golf course. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great, uh, great, terrific story. Did you play other sports as a, as a lad? Um, well, I. I was sort of chosen to play in the cricket team, which is uh, almost non-existent because um, I've got a good eye for the ball and maybe flown the uh, javelin. But football, I just wasn't quick enough. I was, I was, <laughs> I'm just not built for that speed. Yeah. Uh, rugby wasn't a big thing uh, down in the, the schools in, in the Midlands. Obviously, Scotland's very big on rugby. So I didn't play hardly any rugby at all. So probably a good thing in some ways that, um, you know, I don't get injuries. No injuries, collar, right. Collarbones and ribs cracked and fingers broken and all these sort of things, which is one of the little uh, side effects of, you know, trying to be a professional golfer is to stay away from injuries as best you can. Um, you know, doing motorbikes at a very early age was a no-no or going on school uh, skiing holidays was a no-no because I'm always scared of breaking a leg or an injury and then that really blows your chance of um, playing professional golf so, so who were some of your early influences then as you learned the game as a young man or did you learn more from just observation reading books how, how did it come to you well reading wasn't one of my fortes um, but there was obviously big names like Gary Player and Raymond Floyd was another name, and Sam Sneed, Nicholas Palmer. Um, I saw the equipment coming into the pro shop. You know, there was a Sam Sneed, or there was a, a Nicholas, um, the Golden Bear stuff. Um, I was always impressed by different variations. Um, player obviously sort of made an action in my mind that, it, you know, it's about a young man, a young, uh, no, not very small in stature, who can achieve great things through his uh, dedication exercise, things like that. And I think I loved that idea. And I loved the way the clinical stuff that Nicholas did. 
or the flamboyant of a, an Arnold Palmer and seeing bits of wonderful world of golf and stuff like that. So that was my sort of challenge was to sort of say, well, can I do that kind of stuff? I didn't have a, a crystal ball. I didn't know what was ahead of me in 10, 15 years time. So it was out there on the golf course, out there on the range, working reasonably hard. And school time obviously was uh, whatever time I had off um, hitting balls on the football pitch, uh, which was a, kind of a no-no, but I was allowed to do it because I was at least safe <laughs> compared yeah. to some of the other kids. Um, so that would be, you know, it wasn't um, going to college or universities um, learning the trade. It was just built around playing golf with the members and uh, the challenges of obviously uh, amateur stuff um, coming into junior sections uh, under under 18s and under 15s local stuff so you just gradually over time you get uh, aware of being away for a couple of days um, been having to driven to various tournaments as well because obviously I wasn't allowed legally to drive a car and I'm sure the Tiger Woods and that would be driven around here, there, and everywhere to play various uh, golf tournaments and things. So tournament stuff was started at a very early age. And then you move up into the kind of later on sort of 16, 17, I'm playing international matches for England at the time as an amateur. And you're playing against other countries, uh, all taken care of. So you're learning... Um, play match play, you're learning to stroke play, you're learning your golf about yourself, um, playing in other countries and what they do and don't do. So you get a good mental picture of what professional golf is all about. And at the age of 19, uh, I think it was 1977, I I turned professional golf. Yeah, I think uh, just looking at your extensive amateur career uh, over, let's say, a, at least a five-year period of, of pretty high-level competition, maybe, maybe, maybe a little less. But uh, uh, we want to go through some of those accomplishments. I think uh, the, the way Bruce and I would like to start, and I want you to appreciate that Bruce and I do a lot of, uh, well, we do a lot of deep uh, investigative work, uh, yeah. <laughs> looking into one's background for these. And uh, as we were looking at your record, we're looking at the 1974 Boys Amateur Championship. That was at Hoylake. You would have been about 16 years old. And yeah. it occurred to us, as we looked at the final result in that match, we, we wondered, what in the world happened? Well, we've come up with the answer, <laughs> and we've got somebody that could uh, help us explain what happened. Uh, Hi, Sandy. It's Toby Shannon speaking. Oh, Toby Shannon. Yes. Well. <laughs> you obviously went on to far greater things than I ever did in the world of golf. But I do have very fond memories of the game that we had, which must be 48 years ago now. Yeah. Um, I think you were, there's no doubt that you were a big favourite. Everybody uh, expected you to win, including me. Um, but as in sport, as ha- happens very often in sport, sometimes the underdog wins. Uh, and I was very lucky that day. I had a good day. You had a bad day. Um, and the long and the short of it was I managed to beat you, which was a massive surprise to everybody, not least of all me. Um, what I would say, though, is you did get your revenge one year later. We played again in the English Amateur Championship at Ganton. We had a fantastic game and you beat me on the last green. Um, so I have no illusions <laughs> about who was the better player. <laughs> Sandy, you've had an amazing career. Uh, I've followed it with huge interest, as you can imagine. Um, but I think the one thing that really strikes me is that you've never changed. Every time I heard you interviewed, it felt like it was the same person that I played against all those years ago. You, you've kept your feet on the ground um, and you've never lost your passion for the game. And it's, it really is uh, great to have seen you have such a successful career over the years. Uh, I think back to all the people we play with, and you'll remember some of these people like Peter Hedges and Pat Garner, and no one ever had a bad word to say about you. So we're all equally delighted that you had such a fantastic career. So, Sandy, enjoy your chat with Mike Gonzalez. I'm sure he'll fill you in with how we know each other, and hopefully I'll see you again on the golf course before too long.
Hear that? That's the sound of a walk-off albatross, a two on a par five to win a two-day golf tournament. That shot happened to me. One in 600 million odds. Since then, people call me Albie. Now, I've told this story so often, my friends can't take it. I'm pretty sure my wife, next time I tell her, she's going to leave me. So I decided to start a podcast to tell the entire world about it because it deserves it. It's the craziest shot you've never heard of. And guess what? There's tons more stories like this all around golf. And that's what our podcast is all about. Join me and my fellow degenerates, Pan and Shepard as we dive into them. Insane bets, crazy what-if scenarios, and all the you-had-to-be-there type moments in golf. Find us wherever you get your podcast. Did I tell you about Malbatross? Okay. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> that was a good uh, a good little interview, yeah. Well, I can very clearly remember that I got some food poisoning at about two days beforehand, and I was barking up on the golf course quite a few times, several days before I got to the final. And uh, I can very clearly remember that uh, my, I suppose my head and my hands and my energy levels were about as rock bottom as they could be. So I just, I was just going through the motions and I just wasn't, wasn't going to happen at all. And Toby played very steadily and I just played very badly at the same time. So it was a very quick, I think, 10 and 9 or something over a period of two rounds of golf. So uh, that was unfortunate for me, um, good for, for Toby. But that was my excuse anyway. That got <laughs> and, uh, it wasn't well, a technical breakdown with the golf swing. It was a technical with the food. The side. body. <laughs> the body wasn't performing well at all. <laughs> Uh, to be fair, uh, Toby yeah. was quite up front as he shared yeah. that with me that uh, yeah. you had a bug, and uh, that's you know, maybe the reason why <laughs> he was able to prevail. But anyway, uh, he's a good friend, and uh, he holds you in high regard. We just thought we'd start with that to have a little fun. But as you continue down through your record, uh, and uh, uh, you know, we may not have time to talk about each of these victories, but you won a whole bunch as an amateur player, didn't you? Yeah, there was. Um, I was accumulating quite a good trophy cabinet back at home. We had to extend yeah. a little bit over a period of years. Um, by the end of the, my sort of amateur career, that trophy cabinet, there was all over the place. They were on top of the pelmet and the curtains. Yeah. They were on the shelf above the fireplace. They were, they were everywhere. I didn't really have a proper cabinet. But, uh, yeah, there, was, there were trophies from different various things all over the place. So... I've had some pictures taken with some of the main ones uh, in front of me. That was uh, quite impressive. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, if I had a chance to do it again, I would love to have another go at it. But uh, obviously, it's not going to happen. But um, you know, the trophies were lacking up, and your confidence is obviously racking up as well. And so, I think I was about as as well prepared, ready for the the big turn to turn pro uh, back in '77. Sandy, prior to uh, turning pro, you had a great experience in uh, 1974 at the age of 16. You talk about all the professional golfers that you watched and read about. Uh, yeah. Did you get a chance to play with any of them at the Open Championship in 1974? Yeah, I did. Um, as far as the, the practice round was Gary Player. Um, I saw on the starting list for the practice round, uh, I don't know if it was a Tuesday, Wednesday, I can't remember, there was a gap and it had Gary Player on it. And I said, well, I'll just, you know. I'll Put my name there. That's a name I know. <laughs> yeah. I was on the age of 16 and I just qualified for the Open at Lytham. So I gave it a shot. And yeah, he was, uh, you know, Gary's as is usual. He likes to know where you've been or what you're doing and, good future and things like that. And it was also fun to play with him as well, because somebody who's one of my heroes in right. the game of golf and uh, have a chance to play with him. I suppose I had enough courage and I suppose young bull, you just want to have a go at testing yourself as one of the best players in the world. So here's my chance. And I yeah. did too. And, and then I played the Open as well, but I didn't play with anybody uh, name-wise um, that would really... Other than I think Fuzzy, I got Fuzzy Bob as the third round, which was a delight to play. And yeah. um, I don't know if you're aware of Fuzzy, when he addresses the ball, he slides the club along so the ball's virtually off the hosel. 
or yeah. off the shaft almost. So <laughs> he was he did that on the first tee, whistling away, and he put the sort of six iron down and slid the club, and woof, the ball went away, and I thought. Was that a practice swing or was he just goofing around? And, uh, that was him. Yeah, that was him. That was it. And then he whistled away. I mean, what a delight to play with. And, and great ball striker. I mean, those finishing holes at Lytham in the wind, especially likes of 14. You know, he could hit three woods, quail high, no problem. You know, just stood there, crouched down a little bit, hands low. And this funny position with this uh, golf club address. So I'm just... You know, I'm queering myself is what, you know, everybody's different. Yeah. There's never two swings the same. So, you know, it's what works is the important thing. So just for our listeners, the Sandy's talking about the the Open Championship, which was contested at Litham in 1974. You want to remind us of who won that Open, Sandy? Gary Player. Gary Player. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you played you know, with the, the winner. These magical ping one iron at two years and I – achieved not long after that and then uh, made good use, good use of that as well with the ping one iron which was a Carsten one which was a, a very popular uh, uh, iron at that time because they don't even make one irons anymore now no. so uh, it's, <laughs> it's called metal something rather now <laughs> we're just getting back to that uh, amateur record that c- uh, continued after that uh, initial appearance of the open championship you went on to win the Brabazon trophy in in 1975 and 1977 that uh, was the english men's open amateur stroke play championship yeah Uh, you won the Karras trophy at moore park in 1975 that's english boys under 18 uh stroke play amateur championship british youth open championship berkshire trophy at the berkshire golf club which also is a stroke play championship uh, Mm -hmm. British youths in 1977. And this all, uh, of course, leads up to uh, you earning a spot on the Walker Cup team in, in 1977. Yes, and that was in Shinnecock. And I was uh, going to be partnered with Peter McAvoy, who's a very good, familiar name in the amateur ranks and playing yeah. off plus three, plus four for many, many years. And it was quite an interesting little story there that uh, we got on the first tee in the, I think it was the foursomes in the morning. And Peter said to me, well, what ball have you got? And I said, oh, I've got a Dunlop 65. And uh, his face went white. He said, that is not a big ball, is it? And I went, yeah, it's a big ball. It's American size, the 168. He says, I don't use those balls. I use the British size one. (laughs) So we've we've been out there for good how many days or weeks in some ways uh, practicing, and and we've never talked about pairing who's going to use the big ball, who's going to use the small ball. But we had to make a very quick decision on the first tee as which ball we're going to use before we even tee off. And and he's never used the big ball, so I had to back off and use the small ball, which is a – Kind of strange when you've been using the big ball for probably five or six years at that time. Oh, and there was a huge difference between the large size ball um, compared to the small one uh, they have in those days. It's a huge yeah. big difference. The uh, big balls advances an awful lot more now, and its its flight characteristics are a lot better. But the large ball was a beast to try and uh, get around, uh, say, Lynx golf courses and playing in the wind. Uh, it's not much fun, but it's it's a better ball now than it was. Better materials, better design, and it's moved on ahead. But there's no such thing as a small golf ball now. Everything's all the same size. But it was a a big change, and for me, for going to the small ball in the, in the Walker Cup match. I'm not saying you know we lost our match in the morning because we went to the small ball. It was just one of those things that popped up on the first tee. We've got to make your mind up. <laughs> And I think, Sandy, I think, I think in 77, that was the uh, last year where, you, from a professional standpoint, that you could use both balls or yeah. either one. And it was, uh, I think, 78 when, when the world went to the 1.68. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that was. Uh, it, it ran about that time. There was a uniform ball, and that was what it was going to be. And that was the American-sized golf ball, and I think it still stays to, to this day. What do you remember about uh, your first impressions of Shinnecock at that young age? 
Well, uh, way too green to be sort of a Lynx golf course. <laughs> way too, you know, they yeah. say, well, this is the news you're going to get in America to a Lynx golf course. And it was way too green. The fairways, the, uh, the ball sat down a bit with a small ball on the fairways. Not so easy to hit the long irons or pick them as clean. And the heavy, heavy rough, which is not really a linksy type. Uh, but it does have the linksy type wind there. I also have given, given the dew there, and there's some hills and some blind shots and second shots, and there's uh, going to drive the ball well. But I'm used to playing on a lithium course where the grass is brownie color and the ball's running about running. 40 yards. And yeah, it's not really, you'd say, it's, it's a. It's, it's got the wind to be Lynx, but it's not a Lynx golf course. It's a little nearer, but uh, probably about a, a six and a half out of ten, I would say, as far as a Lynx golf course. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Of course, the U.S. side featured uh, some names that our listeners would remember, too. Jay Sigel, who's one of the greatest American amateurs we've ever had. Scott yeah. Simpson, who went on to major championship fame. And, of course, Fred Ridley, who now uh, is top yes. man at, at Augusta okay. National. That's yeah. right, yeah. Uh, we, I think that our match uh, played against Jim Fort and Vance Hefner, which are nice. other names that were. I know Hefner's passed away about six years ago, but uh, I don't know what about Fort is now, what he's doing or whatever. He seemed a very. Uh, I think he uh, played in the the uh, U.S. Open men's match play virtually the following week after Shinnecock and did very well in that. I don't know if he won it or he was in the top quarterfinals or something so he seemed like uh, a type of player would go forward in the game of golf as far as uh, playing on the professional tour I think he obviously did turn professional but uh, didn't materialize as much as we thought it was going to do. Bruce and I are always fascinated to hear the stories of uh, what you fellas went through in your decision to turn professional why don't you take us back to those days and the thought process um, well, obviously, the target was with my father was Walker Cup. Uh, the best you can do is in amateur golf, uh, the peak anyway, the gold medal is to get Walker Cup and then make a decision from there onwards. I think Rory McIlroy turned virtually straight away after Walker Cup and never looked back after that. Um, myself, um, it was for me, quite an easy decision because there was nothing else in my background. I wasn't a reader. I wasn't a lawyer. I wasn't a whatever, a builder. It was just golf, 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 golf. And the decision was there made for me. It was take it on as another challenge to move up to the professional ranks. And I was going to get some, I had really very little money um, put away at the time. Um, and I won the qualifying school at Fox Hill, which is just south of uh, the mains of London, uh, southwest. Um, I won that, uh, I think, 300 pounds, which is about $500. And that about doubled my bank balance at that time. <laughs> but when I turned pro, I, I got a, a deal with Hawkston Park. They were going to put a bit of money up front. And I got some money up front from uh, Dunlop. Uh, with equipment and clothing and the golf ball, all three basically, which is very little money compared to what they make nowadays in far as contracts. Right. But it was, it Tough sort of one. gave me a bit of confidence that um, I'm going to get some backing. And uh, so, manager wise, there was a Derek Pillage or McCormacks at the time were floating around as golf managers. And um, Mark McCormack, seemed a possibility, but Derek Pillage was the one that I chose in the end, really because my dad knew of him uh, from Glasgow area and gave some of Derek's first lessons in golf. And Derek Pillage had a history with Brian Barnes, Ewan Murray, you might hear on the, on the mm -hmm. things. Um, there was uh, Tommy Horton. Uh, there was about uh, about 10 or 12 of the... Of the uh, called the Golfing Lions. We had a sponsorship by British Caledonian Airlines, and we were called the Golfing Lions. So hmm. I was really traveling around as a, um, as a team in some ways, traveling with British Caledonian Airways, traveling around together under the same roof with the manager. So it all kind of fitted quite well at the time. Um, then 
Of course, unknown to me, within about the second year on the European tour, I uh, won the money list with a grand total of £39,000, won the money list in Europe. And things started to um, happen from there. Seve was buzzing around. He was making a name for himself about a year before me. So there was a challenge, and Faldo was a year older than me. So there was, um, there was three, three big names that were floating around. Brian Barnes obviously was playing quite a lot of golf in Europe at the time. So uh, I had some plenty of competition to play against. But after so many years, um, you know, things weren't moving ahead that much as far as um, contract-wise. So we had to look for, or I had to look for some, a bigger name in management side, which McCormack had. And um, they really controlled a lot of European golf. And um, as far as the television rights and who gets what, who gets to play in certain tournaments and some overseas players, you know, getting upfront money to play and things like that. And I was getting absolutely zero. So I thought, well, if he can't beat me, I'll have to join him kind of scenario. And uh, so around about 85 when I won the Open, it was probably very good timing. I was with Mark McCormack's. And then I think the whole game, as far as um, getting contracts uh, with uh, Turnberry, um, there was a whiskey company called Ballantines I was with. Mm-hmm. It all started to, you know, get into the limelight, the big stuff now. And I won the money list again. I think it was 80, 81, bum, 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 bum. So things were looking good. And I was playing in you know, major tournaments then overseas and also in Europe as well. So that was the, it was a kind of slow start as far as the pro. It happened quickly. You know, we thought maybe a five-year plan that you know, maybe after a few years you get used to the golf courses, get used to the lifestyle You've gone from amateur golf playing three months, four months of the year to now professional golf. You're now doing 10 months. You know, it's, right. it's a lot of traveling, 36 tournaments in a year or 31, that kind of scenario. That's a lot. And it's a lot. It's a big change, you know, for traveling, a lot of Europe and then Africa. And then obviously doing well in Europe, I was getting invitations to go to the PGA or go to the Masters or you go to the U.S. Open. So you can't do those just in an odd week. You've got to plan ahead and get out there and play various tournaments beforehand and acclimatize time-wise and weather-wise. So there's a lot going on, and it it gets tough um, as you travel. You know, I can see with a young tennis star just retired at the age of 25, and, you know, (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing. But, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's hard on the body, and... I wasn't born with a, a beautiful golf swing, long and rhythmic. I was a working type golf swing. It was a Lee Tavino golf swing. It was, it, it was my swing and it needed quite a lot of tuning every so often. But uh, it's, uh, it got me to some places where I couldn't think about, you know, 20 years before I turned pro. But yeah. it's all been a good, uh, it's been good experience. And uh, Europe's been a good base ground for getting me get me going uh, as far as confidence level, winning in, uh, winning in Italy, uh, winning in Spain, winning in France, uh, winning in Sweden. Um, so I won in all those sort of places and uh, they're all different and they all have their, their merit. And uh, we go from there. So next question. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I think it'd be good to just sort of recap your uh, your professional record for our listeners, and then let's come back to the point you were making, which I think was talking about how the European Tour prepared you for the next big step, uh, mm-hmm. because it does these careers do tend to come in steps, don't they, in terms of accomplishment and experience. Uh, for the record, uh, Sandy Lyle is... Bruce mentioned earlier, 30 professional wins, including six PGA Tour victories. Sandy mm-hmm. had 18 wins on the European Tour, which is tied for 12th all-time. Uh, one European Senior Tour win as well. He spent 167 weeks in the official world golf ranking uh, top 10 from its introduction in 1986 all the way through 1989. And uh, what we thought we would do is is just recount uh, some of these key wins throughout your career. Obviously, we're going to talk about the majors as well. Uh, but in addition to wins, 
He was the Sir Henry Cotton Rookie of the Year yeah. in 1978 on the European Tour. Of course, Henry Cotton was a three-time Open champion. Uh, the o- European Order of Merit, uh, which he had referenced, uh, won that three times in 1979, 1980, and 1985. Sandy won two majors, of course, the 1985 Open Championship at Royal St. George's and the Masters that we've alluded to in 1988. And then uh, uh, let's just talk, uh, go back to the beginning. Let's talk about that first professional win. I think that came, if I'm not mistaken, at the 1978 Nigerian Open. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Nigerian Open. There's an eye-opener, if ever there's one, you know, from you're going from Boy. a plush land, a parkland golf course in, in Shropshire yeah. to something that's on browns. Uh, browns greens is basically sand and oil greens. And you can smell the petroleum off the greens and the, uh, the, you can smell it in the sand. And uh, it's a different style. There was a lot of brown grass everywhere. Um, not particularly long golf course. Browns actually are very good, not very big greens. Um, they're plateaued a little bit like a saucer upside down. They're small and quite firm. And the hotter the sun gets in the afternoon, actually, the slower the greens get. And you know, if you're golf orientated and you're used to shot making and that, you've seen a very small green from a long distance out, say from 150, just that. It looks about the size of a postage stamp. And you can't land it short because it's on a bit of a hills. It just stops dead. You try and pitch it from a high loft, like a nine iron or whatever, and it breaks through the loose sand on the top and then hits the hard pan underneath. So the ball bounces about six foot in the air and disappears <laughs> into the shrubbery the other side. <laughs> so you've got to come in low. Now, you're trying to come in low from a small green or brown. It's not yeah. an easy task. So it's a whole different... Uh, style of playing because it gets sticky in the afternoon. Uh, the holes get bigger. I must admit the holes do get a bit bigger by the afternoon. So you actually pray to get a late starting time because the holes start to fold in a little bit because they drag mat it and they drag mat it over the top, over the top, get rid of the feet mark and get rid of the ball marks. So the yeah. holes do get a bit, the, the edges of the holes get a bit sort of, uh, I suppose, uh, softened. Yeah. So a lot of players, the, the regular players, who go around there and 21, 24 putts per round easily because yeah. of the, the size of the greens, the size of the holes. So putting actually is quite a good experience, but to actually play the golf course is a whole new experience because of the style you have to try and ad- adapt to. And I wasn't familiar with that kind of thing, but you you learn quickly. You watch the locals and how they do it and you you ask questions and it's, it's another way of an experience. And I had something like 61, 63 in the first two rounds, and then uh, not so good on the finishing two rounds. But I think it was on a playoff against Michael King, which is a E-turn pro, and he's at Sunningdale. And I still see him oh, okay. most years, yeah. and I play at Sunningdale, yeah. Yeah. Well, Bruce, uh, Sand Green certainly have come up uh, with a lot of our uh, – guests, including uh, Gary Player. I, I remember him talking about these. And for our listeners who haven't played sand greens, it is an oil and sand mixture. And the, the main reason, well, there's two main reasons. One main reason is you don't want the green to blow away. Right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and it provides a pretty nice putting surface once you're able to use your little smoothing tool. Yeah, I mean, it does. I mean, you don't have to worry about grain. And if somebody hasn't... Uh, say, drag-mapped it very well, you can see the trace of the ball and, and what, it, what it's doing. So you can learn by looking at the movement of the ball and how it's left a little rut on the green, and you can follow that. And so, yeah, it's, it, it makes good scoring, and it is yeah. fun. Yeah. yeah. But then you're also trying to make a living doing it as well, and that heat is you know, it's way into the 90s, and, uh, and humidity is very high up there as well. And the old-school... Um, were afterwards and say in the clubhouse and that they were drinking star beers and stuff like that and you know they were fine, but we were told when we went out there that you got to you know stay to the uh, soft drinks and da 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 they're easy to drink. But he didn't mention about the ice. So some of the young players were having ice in their drinks and the ice with the water has got bacteria 
And the the, uh, the older guys, the more experienced guys, drinking the star beer were fine all week, but some of the young ones, uh, all right. I imagine, were <laughs> not in a good state by the end of the day. <laughs> they were having uh, trips. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So what was the what was the winner's prize that week? Do you remember? Uh, I think it was close to about three thousand pound, which is not bad. Not compared no, not to these too bad. days, but at the no. time, you think I won the money list in '79 with thirty-nine thousand pound, and this yeah. was a three thousand pound check or two eight five or something about three thousand, which is it sort of more than doubled my bank balance at that present time. So I was very happy with that. So Sandy, after after that victory there in 1979, uh, you broke into a victory in the uh, European Tour, uh, not only once, but you won three times that year. Mm-hmm. Won at the Avis Open, the Scandinavian Open, and the European Open Championship. That was a pretty good start into the European Tour. Yeah, I think when you when you have those kind of things in in one year, the, the three wins, including the European Open, uh, that was the big check was the European Open. I think that was close to about twenty one thousand pound, which has just been raised that particular year, and uh, that really helped me on the way to win the money list uh, that particular year. So that big prize money made a huge boost. I think I beat Sam Torrance by some silly amount, like about fifty pound or something like that. So, um, yeah, winning the European Open was a biggie. Um, the story behind that, I think it was uh, Turnberg. It was, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'd won the week before in the Scottish, I think the Scottish Professional Championship, which is only just down the road. But the whole two weeks that I won, uh, STV, which is Scottish television, were actually on strike. So I didn't, I didn't get as much coverage uh. of golf as I was probably should have been allowed in some way. So it was a bit annoying for me because if you win those, you know, two in a row, beating Sam Torrance in the playoff and uh, winning the money list in the European Open, it would be nice to have full coverage of the uh, Scottish television. But it wasn't to be, but uh, a win's a win. And I think if any can it wins tournaments, um, you know, it's all about momentum in the end and confidence, you know. Sure. There's lovely ball strikers out there in pressure on the range and think, oh, how am I going to beat this guy? But it's all about how much momentum you have and how much confidence you have within yourself and relying on your, your trusty old golf swing to pull you through. That win at Turnberry was uh, pretty comfortable coming in, I guess. You won by seven, so you must have been somewhat <laughs> relaxed uh, walking down that last well, fairway. It had one a remarkable start. I think the start just broke the back and all the players. I had six birdies in the first seven holes uh, yeah. at Turnberry. And I, I know, you know Bruce has probably played Turnberry before. Yeah. But uh, it's not an easy kind of first seven or eight holes. And you have six in the first seven. Um, that just broke the back of the, of the feeling. Howard Clark was playing behind me. And he had like a one-shot or two-shot lead or something like that, which, you know, Howard Clark was one of the big names in golf that you really had to sort of keep an eye on. If it wasn't Seve, it'd be Howard. If it wasn't Howard, it would be Faldo. If it yeah. wasn't Faldo, it would be in Woosnam you had to keep an eye on. So um, that just, uh, that kind of start was uh, almost freaky. You know, I couldn't, I played the um, I second, third, fourth, fifth hole, which is a kind of dog leg, slightly, almost a par five, a long par four, and it was playing into the wind. And I hadn't hit particularly a very good tee shot, and I got jammed in the corner of a bunker. I could only move the ball, and it tugged it left about 80 yards because of the lie. And I was way up into the sand dunes, about 80 yards from the pin, thinking, how am I going to get even a par <laughs> out of this? Or even a bogey would be quite happy, because I'm in the thick stuff, and I'm 80 yards from the green, and I've got a virtually no green to play with. And uh, I knocked it in the can for, for a three. So <laughs> these these are these things. Well, you know, it happens, but it's, it's happened right now. I've just had my six birdies or five birdies in a row. Now I've just yeah. chipped in, and I've got a par yeah. three coming up, which is two hundred and thirty-five yards or something that region. And I made birdie there as well. So it was like boom, boom, boom. Here we go. Yeah. I should have really actually that day. I shot sixty-five in the end, and I missed endless putts in the back nine for, for birdies 
plus a three-putt thrown in for 65. I mean, it could have been one of those rounds 59 was on the cards, but it didn't materialize. Because you've got to, at some stage, start thinking, you know, I can't keep attacking like this. It could be a bit too right. dangerous. I could have a bad number if I'd been too bullish about the whole world, attacking it too hardly and then getting into trouble. So I think the last sort of six holes was more conservative golf rather than keeping the momentum going. But that was one of the rounds I really felt I could have I could have broken uh, 60 round there. But in the end, you know, a win, win by six, seven shots um, to win the money list as well at that time, European Open, was uh, a big achievement. And I think actually after that, I had to drive down to the Midlands, which is like a seven-hour drive, and um, met the, my dear mum and dad and had some fresh clothes and had some food, and, and I drove down then to London to go ready for the Ryder Cup. Yeah. And wearing my shirt and tie and da-da-da-da, all looking very official and you know, I've had a big old trip going down, got a lot of press things to do before I left Turnberry and uh, drive, big drive, then drive down to London. Uh, Mark James and Ken Brown were in a pair of gym shoes and stuff like that. It was like, we're not supposed to be yeah. like that. We're supposed to be dressed up. So I managed to, I've just come from the other side of the country, uh, driven down myself, which is quite a long way, managed to get some uh, clothes and head down to the Ryder Cup and, and put on a shirt and, and blazer and look the part and ready to go. And, and I see Mark James, the first person I backed into, and he's got a pair of gym shoes on and an open <laughs> T-shirt and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> well, you know, that was, that was just before Tony Jacklin got involved and made sure you guys were properly kitted and, and transported yeah. and so forth, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. Uh, it was all um, five star for Ryder Cup from there onwards. Um, I think I think he made the big change. I think he not a lot of people wanted to be a Ryder Cup captain, you know. And uh, and uh, Tony sort of took up the invitation, but he says only in one condition: we're going to travel like proper five star players. Right. Uh, hence why we're going out this way. We're going to have the proper sweaters. We're going to have decent clothing. We're going to have golf bags that don't have stickers on it and they, they start and wash off after one rainstorm. We're going to have proper bags with stitching and, and look the part. And he definitely changed that around. And uh, my first Ryder Cup was being involved um, with Europe. And so we had uh, Sevi and some of the Spanish golfers joining the team, including Michael King that I just mentioned from Sunningdale. So yeah. we, were, we felt a lot better team to play against the Americans. And it was, uh, I could see the writing on the wall was, was getting closer and closer. Maybe not going to happen in the early years, but um, later on, as I was getting towards my fifth and sixth sort of Ryder Cup, um, there was a chance um, they were going to win at some stage. Yeah, yeah, no question. And uh, we'll come back to uh, some of the Ryder Cup experience. So let's just go back to the European tour and the lead up to coming over and playing a little bit more on on the tour in the in the States. You got a series of wins in the early 80s, a great win at a great track in Wales at the Welsh Classic in 1980. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that was uh, quite funny because we returned to the, uh, to the golf course, uh, Royal Port. Uh, was it Royal Port Court? It was, Royal yes. Port Court, yeah. 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 There was a story with that one uh, about three years ago. I was playing the British Open seniors there, and I wasn't—I couldn't quite remember if I'd played this golf course. The, the name seemed to ring a bell, but I wasn't sure. <laughs> Mr. Mr. Cut in the Open, and I went down early um, from Birkdale, I think it was, and uh, arrived in the clubhouse and to be welcomed by one of the old members there. So, welcome back, Sandy. <laughs> and I go, but I played here. I wasn't sure if I played it. Said, oh, yes, you did. You won the Coral Welsh Classic back in 81 or something. And he go. pointed up to the score, up to the board. So there's your name on the board there to prove it. You, you yeah. actually won here. So I thought, oh, oops. <laughs> oops. Yeah, that was 1980. <laughs> <laughs> 1980, 81, whatever it was. Yeah. 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 And, a, you know, a series of other good wins you had, the 81, 82, you won. Mm-hmm. Uh, you won in France over Longer. You won uh, 
uh, in Bingley St. Ives, Bradford by two over Faldo in the mm. Lawrence Bartley Inv- Invitational. You won that uh, back-to-back, didn't you? Because you beat yeah. Panero the next year, didn't you? Yeah. yeah. The interesting story talking about Royal Porth calling, and I was just thinking that was the first week that uh, Dunlop came out with a new ball, the, the DDH, and uh, the dodecahedron, it stands for, which is really the dimple patterns they have nowadays with the modern ball that uh, Titleist use and various other companies. And uh, I was given the grand total of three balls on the, uh, <laughs> the start of the week. And uh, I thought this was really to try. They were, they, were, they were legal balls to hit. I mean, I just thought I'll just try them on a pro-am. And then, you know, yeah, this is good. It feels like I'm almost cheating. This ball flies through the wind. It does this, does that. Well, I used those three balls all week at, at Royal Post Court. Some got more than one round of golf because it's a surling cover. Yeah. I had no other balls to back up on, so it had to be these balls are nothing. I hope I don't lose any in the way around. Yeah. I'm in deep doo-doo. So, uh, so I did use three balls for the whole four, well, five rounds, I suppose, wow, with pro yeah. and stuff like that thrown in. So that's uh, quite an interesting little story on the golf ball and the durability of it as well. But it, it almost felt like I was cheating in some ways, but the way the ball just sided its way through the strong winds and because Port Call is right on the links. I mean, you are in the windy area. And if you don't control your rock there, you're a big dude. Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Good of the Game. And please, wherever you listen to your podcast on Apple and Spotify, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, spread the word, and tell your friends. Until we tee it up again, for the good of the game, so long, everybody. Whack down the fairway. It went smack down the fairway Then it started to slice just a smidge off line It headed for two, but it bounced off nine My caddy says, long as you're still in the state, you're okay Yes, it went straight down the middle Quiet